This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne-WY-Giving. Well, First Peter chapter 1, in the second paragraph, because it all ties together before we get into the, into the new stuff around about verse 17, no, verse 13, we'll get there in a few minutes, but in the second paragraph begins in verse 3, Peter said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, according to his abundant mercy, hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You have to remember The apostles that wrote these letters were kind of verbose, okay? Now, Paul is probably the biggest culprit of that, using many, many words to express his ideas, but none of them were wasted. Peter doesn't use as many, but they still tended to just not be very concise when they were uh, communicating what they were talking about. What he's talking about here in the second paragraph, beginning in verse 3, is the born-again experience that as many as have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ have experienced. That is what has changed us. And it's important to understand that. Christianity isn't something that we just sort of gradually phased into. It might seem like that, but no matter how it came about in your life, there was a point of decision where you were oriented towards sin and the world and the penalties of sin and the pleasures of sin and all of that that you ceased to be oriented from that. And the next moment you had a heart for God, you were oriented towards God, you had repented of your sins. Now, sometimes that can get kind of murky if you reach back in your memories to try to pinpoint exactly where that was. A lot of people, they don't have that problem at all. They knew exactly what they were before they prayed. And then they understood when they finished praying that they were different people. So however it was for you though, understand If you have accepted Christ out of a sincere heart, you have by that been born again. And that is the bloodline in your life. That is the dividing line between the old you, the old man, the old woman, so to speak, and the new you that has been raised up in newness of life in Christ Jesus. And Why am I talking about this? Well, because sometimes people have prayed for salvation four or five times before they hit the age of 20 or 25. And they don't know really when it was. What I used to be, I am not anymore. And that's kind of what Peter's talking about here when he says in verse three, when he speaks of blessed be God, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope. He hath begotten all of us. What does that mean? We know what the word begotten means. Beget, begotten is kind of more poetic and older English for gave birth. God has, through his mercy and through the blood of Jesus Christ, he has begotten all of us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed 
in the last time. That one sentence, and it's a long sentence, it's five verses long, three verses long, excuse me. That one sentence reveals so much to us about the nature of our transformed experience in Jesus Christ. He says that we're kept by the power of God. Do you realize that you're not even kept by the force of your own will, although the force of your own will can help? It is the power of God that keeps us. If so, be that we want the power of God to keep us. So that doesn't take away free will from us, okay? That doesn't take away free will from the occasion because God doesn't force anyone, not in this dispensation. Yes, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess, but that's not happening yet, is it? That's for a future time. That's when God puts down all wickedness and all of that by force. And that's all been prophesied of and the word is revealed in other places. So in verse six, he goes on to say, wherein ye greatly rejoice. He's talking about this salvation and the power of God through faith unto salvation that will be revealed in the last time. He says, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptation. I know we, we, we taught... I don't want to say extensively, but we, we did teach fairly extensively on this two weeks ago when we first opened up this portion of scripture. And it was on my heart again tonight as I was preparing for the Bible study. The heaviness that you find yourself in when you're going through hard times and when you're going through bad things, or even if you're reaping bad consequences from bad decisions, whatever it is that brings you in your heart to a state of heaviness and a state of mind is good for you. It's not something how do I put this? It's not something to be resented, okay? Now let's read through it again. I'm going to bring out exactly what we're talking about. He says, He says, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Why is that good? Because of the very next verse, what he brings out. In verse 7, he says, That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Again, that's more of that lots of verbosity on the points of the apostles. Why is that good? Trials aren't good. They hurt, right? But we reveal the purpose of it here, or he reveals the purpose of it right here in verse 7. He says, the trial of your faith which is much more precious than that of gold. Now, notice his language. He didn't say that your faith was more precious than gold, though it is. He said that the trying of your faith, the trial of your faith, the testing it and the refining of it is much more precious than the trial and the refining and the testing of gold to see what it's worth. This came up recently. I don't remember if it was in a study. I think it was in a message. Maybe it was in a study when we first talked about this. You have different... um, you have different grades of gold, don't you? You got 24 karat gold that's like the purest you can get, I think. Um, and then you have uh, lesser carats of gold, 14 karat. And I think we talked about that cheap stuff that, well, comparatively cheap stuff, 10 karat rolled gold. It's like a plating that they can put on things. And it's, it's kind of yellow. It almost looks like brass more than gold. It's just not that impressive. They'll say, well, how do you purify gold? You know, what's involved in all of that? And again, without digressing too much in into the smelting and refining of gold. You purify and you you improve the quality of precious metals like gold and silver through trial by fire or by heat. That's what you do. So if you've got a bunch of gold ore that you have mined out of the ground, I don't think anybody here has done that, but in case you ever do, and you're trying to make it worth something, and you get 
you get a certain grade of gold out of that, you want it to be pure and of greater worth, well, you heat it up. And as it heats up, and you heat it up hotter and hotter, it melts, it becomes molten, and then you continue to heat it. And then the imperfections and the impurities that are in that gold, which is what? Substances that are not gold themselves. There might be some iron in it. I don't know what all is found in gold ore. But those imperfections, those impurities, will manifest, well, they will separate from the gold, the molten gold, and then they will rise to the top. It's the same way with silver. Refining silver works the same way. So what happens then? You have this nasty junk at the top of your molten gold and your molten silver that isn't going to be attractive when that thing cools down and it looks all cruddy and dirty. What does the refiner do? Well, he then scrapes all of that stuff off the top. Here's why this is good for us. You go through something in your life as a Christian or something happens. It, I'm not even talking about something that's long and protracted, some agonizing battle that you're just praying every single day. So praise God for those agonizing battles. It makes you praise every day. Pray every day because it draws you and keeps you closer to God. Okay, And then you develop a habit of just staying closer to God. You don't forget the one that delivers you. Okay, But you go through something... Something may be unexpected, and usually it is something unexpected that then brings this out, okay? It, it tries you, it heats up your spirit and your temperament, so to speak, and it reveals some sort of an imperfection in your character. You go through something and it shows you something in yourself that is not of God. It shows you something that is not of Christ. And so the Christian's initial reaction, a lot of times we knee jerk, as most people do. Christians, we didn't cease to be human just because we became Christians. Not that that becomes a justification for wrongdoing, but you go through something. You know what? Let's pick something really easy and just super low caliber. Okay, can we do that? You accidentally slam that thumb in a car door. Oh man, nothing like that, especially on a nice cold winter day. It's always so much worse when it's cold. And it just makes your knees buckle a little bit and you give out sort of a, you know, or something like this is horribly painful. Well, is that the only thing that comes out? Maybe something else comes out, a little bit of that French just sort of. Uh-oh, what's up with that? That's very revealing. It's very revealing to you, first of all, and to anybody else that's standing around, especially if they know that you bear witness as being a Christian, they'll jump all over that like white on rice. It's one of the first things that, that, that sinners that are trying to find fault with the believer, uh, they, they tend to latch onto that sort of thing. Anything that discredits you will make them feel justified in their sins, okay? But say something like that happens or something else and it reveals, I don't know, maybe it reveals you know, that you've still got some profanity in your heart. Maybe it reveals a dishonest streak in you because you found that under temptation you lied to get yourself out of a bad situation. Maybe it reveals a short fuse in your temper. That's good. What? How is that good? I don't mean the, I don't mean what's come out as good. I mean, it's been revealed to you. That's the good thing, right? So immediately when that happens, the devil does one of two things. He's instantly on the scene, so to speak, okay? He shows up to either A, beat you down and tell you what a horrible hypocrite of a Christian you are and you ought to just throw in the towel right now. You're a terrible person. Or worse, he's going to show up to try to get to, to try to salve your conscience and tells you, and tell you it's okay because you're only human. 
Well, you don't go for either of those. Don't fall for either of those traps. The reason it's good is because it has brought something out in your gold that was impure. And now you can deal with it. Now you and God together, because that's how God works a lot of times. He works with us as well as within us and upon us, okay? It is a cooperative thing. Now it's been manifested, so all right, well, what do I do? You say, preacher, you know, that happened to me today, you know, and I felt terrible about it, and the devil was there, and he was beating me down. Or Actually, he wasn't there because he didn't have to because I just beat myself down. I did the devil's job for him. A lot of Christians do that. Stop doing the devil's job for him. Make that little punk work. <laughs> Seriously, you know, don't give him any freebies. You know, and certainly never throw in the towel. See, the refiner, when he's refining the gold and it boils all that crud up to the surface, he doesn't just say, oh, well, I guess it wasn't pure gold. I'll just throw it away. Who does that? Nobody does that. And so God doesn't do that with us either. So what do I do with it then? Something like this has happened. It has tried my faith and it has revealed something in me that is unchristlike. What do I do with that? You immediately take it to the Lord in prayer. First for forgiveness. Throw some thanksgiving in there too. Father, thank you for revealing myself to me. I needed to know this. Help me with this. I don't want to be like this. I don't want to be a, an angry person who's given to venting their wrath all the time. That's very unchristlike. I don't want to be a profane person with filthy language in my heart spewing out under provocation. I don't want to be um, I don't want to be a liar. I don't want to be a dishonest person. I want to be exactly what your word has said that I should be. And so you take it to the Lord in prayer and he begins to help. He begins to help with that. And in our cooperative efforts and his miraculous power and all of that, he begins to realize Christ more and more in us. And then we're no longer 10 karat gold. Then we're 14 karat gold. And then we get tried some more. You know, and then maybe, I don't know, is there an 18? I don't know what there is. I don't know all the different ratings for gold. But I just know 24 is supposed to be as close to molecularly pure as we can get, okay, in terms of gold. But it makes you better and better and better. Thus, we rejoice even though, if now for a season, he says, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. And there, Peter's using the same kind of phrasing that Paul was using in our message on Sunday morning when he talked about the end of the commandment that he was uh, writing to Timothy about. He spoke of the end of the commandment, not meaning the conclusion of the commandment, but the end result, the product and the intention of the commandment. Likewise, Peter's using the same phrasing here in verse 9, receiving the end of your faith. It doesn't mean that your faith is died and it's over. That's not a good thing. It means the end result, the product of your faith being brought to pass receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. And then the next paragraph, I don't want to review that. It's good. We'll just read through it really quick to get on to, to the new stuff here, beginning in verse 13. He says, Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, 
searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them which have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. All of that summarized, the prophets prophesied about the things which we now experience and understand. And the angels themselves looked into, desired to look into and understand these things which we as born-again believers have experienced, continue to experience and understand because those things that the prophets prophesied of, they did not understand. And that was actually quite common. The Spirit of God would move upon a prophet back. I guess we are reviewing it. The Spirit of God would move upon a prophet back there in the Old Testament and they would speak the words that God had given to them and prophesy and communicate the message or write it down, record it however it was. But they didn't always, they, they rarely, if it was something messianic, rarely if ever did they understand the depth of its import and its meaning. You look back into some of the Old Testament prophecies that, that sort of hint with very poetic language about the coming of Messiah. And one that comes to my mind over the last week or so was, and I'll paraphrase it just because I didn't write it down. I didn't prepare that. But, and I want to say that it was in Isaiah, but don't, don't hold me to that. Who is this that cometh from Basra with garments dyed red? And the, the phrasing may be a little bit off, but that's effective. That's essentially what it was. Who is this that cometh from Basra with garments dyed red? It's a reference to the coming of the Messiah and many others that were far less ambiguous than that. The prophets didn't realize what they were writing, not entirely. And so we are on the receiving end of ministry that was engaged in and committed and recorded thousands of years ago. It was recorded for us. Prophecies about the Messiah didn't benefit the Jews in the time of Isaiah, but it sure benefits us today, doesn't it? Praise God for that. Praise God for that. Likewise, the angels themselves, even their understanding is very, has been very limited, trying to understand what redemption is all about. And as we talked about two weeks ago, so, well, why is it a mystery to them? Because they've never been lost. The angels that are still in the service of the Lord, okay, I'm not talking about those that fell with Lucifer and all of that stuff, but those angels that are still ministering spirits to God's people and all of that, we don't get too embroiled in that because then that becomes an obsession in its own right. And many people have swerved aside and erred in, in, in looking too deeply into that sort of thing. Those angels have never needed redemption. They never needed the saving power of Christ. So how can they possibly understand you know, the import and the, the importance of what we have received in Christ and what's coming our way? So now, according to the Bible, it may be that we are, as the Bible says, a little lower than the angels. But the time's coming, the Bible also says, when we, who are a little lower than the angels today, we're going to judge the angels themselves. Did you know that? First time I heard that blew my mind. I didn't know what to do about that. I'm sitting there. I was a 19 year old GI in the service was home. Pastor Kinson said something like that. He was preaching and it came out. I think I gaped at him like a teenager because I was a teenager. I'd never heard that, but it's true. It's biblical. 
There's a time coming in the eternal perfect state, the kingdom that's on its way. We're going to judge the angels themselves. What that exactly means has not necessarily been revealed. We'll just leave that in God's hands. Let's move on. Verse 13 begins the fourth paragraph. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Stop right there. So that's verse 16. That's the whole paragraph. This is loaded. So what do you mean? Well, first of all, I didn't know that my mind had loins. What does that mean? Say, gird up the loins of your mind. What's that? Just means mentally prepare yourself is all that that means. All right. When you read King James English about, you know, being girt about the paps or girt about the loins with a girdle, all it means is the guy was wearing a belt. Okay. That's all that that language means. It's not anything mysterious. Here he says, gird up the loins of your mind means kind of mentally speaking, hitch up your draws, you know, and prepare yourself. Be sober, he says, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, what revelation is that that he's talking about? When Christ comes again, whether it's him coming again and catching his church away, or whether it's him coming again at the, at the second advent that is, you know, one of the many future hopes of the church, that's going to be like the final revelation of Jesus Christ. And then there's glory that's going to be revealed, the hope and the end and the grace that's going to be brought unto us at that time. Verse 14, he says, as obedient children, and this is all one sentence here, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. Okay, this is where the rubber is hitting the road in this paragraph. So, well, the first verse there didn't, that just sounds like, you know, great future stuff. Okay, all right, I'm looking forward to that. But verse 14 brings it right to the present day, right to the present moment. He said, as obedient children, it's what we're supposed to be, obedient unto our heavenly father. As obedient children to our Heavenly Father, not fashioning yourself. What's it mean to fashion something? It just means to shape it or form it or make it or however it is. Not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. That is a reference to the old life before you trusted in Christ. So what's he seeing there? All right, well, now that we're new creatures in Christ, we have this, this most excellent hope, this divine hope, and all of these promises we've been talking about uh, since two weeks ago, and joy unspeakable, full of glory, the trial of our faith, and all of these things, and the salvation, this salvation that was bought by the blood of Christ that the prophets prophesied of but didn't understand, that angels long to look into but still can't quite get what it's actually like to experience it, all these different things. He says, don't fashion yourself according to the former lusts now that, that ruled you in your old life because of your ignorance concerning right and wrong and what God's expectations were for our lives. Now, I'll ask this question. If he is our heavenly father, doesn't he have a right to expect 
a certain standard of behavior and life from us? Doesn't he? He's our father. He's the one that paid the price to redeem us, buy us out of sin, change us from the inside out. Jesus is the one who shed his blood to affect that change in our life and pay the price that we owed for all of our transgressions in our former lusts and in our ignorance back in the old life. So now, having been brought out of all of that and been changed on the inside by all of that miraculous power, okay, and being made into new creatures in Christ, he's saying, don't try to live the same life. Don't try to fashion yourself according to that old model, that old template, because that was a bad model. That was a bad template. Now, we live in a time of um, a lot of self-development and self-help stuff that's out there. I refer to it fairly often. I mean, I've seen some pretty good videos on the web about, you know, different life hacks. I don't like that term, but um, I just think it's been abused and it's become cliche. But different life hacks and tricks and techniques and things like that to better, better oneself, improve your health, improve your comprehension, get better sleep, get, get more focus, you know, get your mind working better, be more productive, you know, be a, be a better person all the way around. It usually tends to, that whole industry tends to really lean towards the greater productivity as an end goal of all of that stuff. And there's some merit to all of that. But if you've got unbelievers, if you've got people that have never known Christ, have never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, they've never tasted of the heavenly, of the heavenly gift and of the Spirit of God, you know, they've, they've never had any of that. And they still understand that there's a need to improve in their lives certain things. And how much more we that have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb? Really? And I know that the trend in modern churches, many modern churches, is to just, you know, get, get a person to the point of salvation where they confess Christ, and then it's like, that's it. All right, you're good. You know, there's no concern about any kind of growth beyond that point. But don't we want to be like Jesus? And I kind of got convicted in the earlier Bible study earlier today when we were talking about we were in Matthew chapter 10, Matthew chapter 9 and Matthew chapter 10, the end of chapter 9 where Jesus tells them that the harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. It revealed the problem in all evangelical work is not the condition of the harvest, but the shortage in manpower, the lack of laborers or the shortage of laborers in the work. And that's, that's something that we've experienced and, and do experience often in our churches because there's just never enough ministers to go around. And in individual churches, you know, you, you work with folks and, and, uh, and you hope that folks you know, desire to have deeper roots and higher branches and better fruit and, and to be more and more like Christ. And, and some do and some just reach a certain point in their growth that they're content and they don't want to grow anymore. Well, one of the things that he revealed to us in, in Matthew chapter 10 is he you know, revealed the need there at the end of chapter 9 and then empowered and prepared his disciples to go out and begin preaching that the kingdom of heaven uh, was at the door, basically. The, uh, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Was his instructions to them on how to react. He gave them nuts and bolts instructions on what to do. You go into a town, you go into a village, you go to a house, find out what house is worthy. Go to that house, and if it's worthy, let your, let your peace abide upon that house. Just to paraphrase it a little bit. And if the house is not worthy, he said, let your peace return unto you. 
And then if they don't receive your words, they don't want to listen, they don't want to hear the message, just knock the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. That's in a different gospel. It doesn't mention as a testimony in Matthew's gospel, but it's there. He said, knock the dust off of your feet and then go on to another place. He said, it'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for that city. And there were reasons for that, not to try to uh, blend these two Bible studies, but just sort of make this one connection. So what did you get convicted about? Well, because a few weeks ago, I met a man that was just about ready to put his fist through the middle of my face when all I wanted to do was invite him to church. And I was kind of flummoxed. I'd met some hostile people before. I've lived for the Lord for 25 years or more. I just didn't know how to react to that. I stand there gaping like a teenager. There I am again. What do I do with this guy? What is wrong with this? This man is insane. I don't know what brought him to that point, but I backed off because that's what you do because we're not radical Muslims. It's not convert or die. We take the message. We try to share it with people. They'll either receive it or they won't. We don't beg. If they don't want to hear what we have, knock the dust off your feet. You move on somewhere else and you do so without bitterness, without anger, without hatred. Yes, we prayed for that man later that day. Prayed for him in the days that followed too. I don't know what in the world made him um, so so violently hostile. So well, did he punch you? No, I'm glad he didn't. Amen. <laughs> what would you have done, Pastor? I don't know. I've never been punched for the sake of the gospel. I'd like to think that I would have remembered the words of my Lord and turned the other cheek. Boy, we'd like to, you know, we'd like to say that, you know, we'd have that kind of presence of mind and and you know, God would give us that kind of grace that we do just that. But you know, you never know exactly what you'll do until you are in that until you're in that literal situation. So I'm not going to say what I do because I don't know. I'd like to say that I'd do the right thing. Pray that I'd do the right thing. Was one person said, "Oh, how did that story go? You've probably heard it, sir." It's like if I hit you in your face, you have to turn the other cheek, right? The man said, "Yes." So what if I hit you in the other cheek? I said, "Well, then you better help. You better hope my salvation holds." <laughs> no, we don't want to be like that. But God help us and, and, and help us to improve if we do become like that. But let's just not be there. So he says to gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, hope to the end uh, for the hope that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. Brethren, sisters, now that you are Christians by the grace of God and by the power of the blood of Christ, don't try to fashion your life the way that it, according to what it used to be. And that's in everything because we, as we you go on through verses 15 and 16, we'll look at his language here. Verse 15, he says, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. What does that word conversation mean in King James English? It's not just talking about the chatter of our mouths. In the conversation that we have talking with, with one another, conversation in King James English means in your entire manner of life, in all of your manner of life, be holy. That's what he's telling us. We were 
something much more wicked and dark and all of that before we came to the Lord. Now that we are his, now that we have been changed, now that we identify with the name of Christ and we call him Lord and Savior, let's fashion our lives according to a new standard. And that standard is the word of Almighty God. And he uses it. There's a trigger word in here. Some people, they hear this word and they just they get triggered like some sort of far left um, ideologue that just can't hear to can't stand to hear something that they don't like. Okay, there's this word in here. Holy. Holy. And we tend to reserve that word for God alone. Right. Oh, well, God is holy. Christ is holy. Maybe church is holy. Maybe the Bible is holy. You know, church is supposed to be holy, by the way, you know, in case there was any doubt in anyone's mind. Holy. We we, we seldom have. A, we seldom are comfortable. Attaching that word to ourselves. Right. But we're supposed to. Because we're supposed to actually be holy. What does that word mean? Holy means set apart. And you look back in the Old Testament. A lot of the commandments that they had, the temple that they had, the tabernacle that they had before they built the temple and all of that, and the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, the table with the showbread and all the, all the different trappings and furnishings and all of that, all the different uh, features that the the priesthood had and that the religion of the Jews had and required. And it wasn't just for the priesthood and things like that, but even some of the commandments that pertain to uh, things as banal as the clothing that people wore. All right. And you go back in the Old Testament, you read about that stuff, especially in the law and in other places. And you think, man, why all of the fuss with all of that stuff? You know, why? Why was the Ark of the Covenant kept in this super secret inner chamber of the temple, you know, far, you know, far deeper inside the temple than the outer court or the inner court and all these other places in this place called the Holy of Holies. Well, because it was all degrees of separation and sanctification unto God. And all of those things pointed to what we're supposed to actually be in our relationship with God and our relationship with the world. We are called to be and admonished to be by the Apostle Peter here as well as many other places to be holy. That means to be separated. Separated from what? Separated from the world. Separated from the corruption specifically that is in the world and its corrupting influences. That's what. And it's here. And I know many believers want to write that whole notion off as something that is legalistic and they just want to forget all about that. And really, legalism has nothing to do with it. What legalism refers to is a person trying to earn their salvation through the, through the, the execution of certain commandments and all of that, trying to earn your way into a place in the kingdom. And that is an impossibility. Born-again Christians, even at an entry level, we know better than that. But having been changed by God, having been changed by the blood of Jesus Christ, we live a holy life or called upon to live a holy life because of what he has already done in us. It's an expectation and it's good and it's right. And remember, you're a Christian man, you're a Christian woman. 
do you not represent your father's house, your heavenly father's house? Bearing the name of Christian, do we not represent our Lord Jesus Christ? Now think, meditate on the implications of that. How heavy is that? I don't want to make it sound like it's heavy because then it makes it sound like it's burdensome. And really it's not. A holy life is profoundly liberating. It really is. To live a holy life liberates you from the ungodly expectations of a corrupt and a wicked and a sinful world. And in some ways, for that reason, I am thankful for the existence of Hollywood. What in the world are you saying? Relax. Because almost no institution out there illustrates Babylon, spiritual Babylon, wickedness, and the madness and the insanity that comes with that better than Hollywood does. Those people are nuts. I mean, a lot of them, they have absolutely gone over the rainbow. They don't know up from down anymore, not morally speaking, not ethically speaking. And so with Hollywood producing all of these ridiculous standards out there that uh, that America's women especially, but men also, men aren't exempt from this. A lot of times they get sucked into it too. But our women, our men or whatever, you know, we, we see these figures out there in Hollywood and these celebrities and all of this stuff and we think, oh, well, that's the kind of person that I want to be. But, and you look into their life because there's always tabloids that'll report on all of that slop. And you just see, you see just how trashed out and shipwrecked their lives are. Is that something that we want to model our lives after? Do we want to model our marriages after Hollywood marriages? Oh my goodness. We'd all be married and divorced five times over before we were 50, maybe more. That's just, he says not to fashion ourselves according to the former lusts in our ignorance. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, in all manner of your life. Be holy. Be more specific. What do you mean? What is that? It's just, it's just a broad brush. What does he say in there? In your speech and your communication, not just with one another, but with everyone, be holy. What does that mean? Purge the profanity and the uncleanness out of your vocabulary. If there's any of it still in there, crucify that stuff. Crush it. You absolutely can through Christ. I know because I did it. I grew up with the filthy mouth. I inherited it from my father mostly and partly from my mother. All right. And I'm not glorifying it at all. It's just, it's a reality of living a sinner life. But you can, through Jesus Christ, kill that stuff. It, it takes some work and some effort. And sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes the Holy Ghost just takes it right on out of your heart without any effort. And sometimes you really just have to clamp it down and murder that thing and just get it out of you. However it has to be, let it be. Be holy in your communication. Give up the lying tongue because that's never good and it's never right. When the person lies, they contribute to the insanity of the world. They become part of the problem. They do not become part of the solution or they have ceased to be part of the solution. The gossiping tongue, the blaspheming tongue, purge all these things from your heart and they will be purged from your speech. And then you will be a person of holy and upright communication. You know what? People will appreciate that. They may jab you and give you grief at first because they remember what you used to be. But 
you'll show them you are now different. That's one of the first things that the Spirit of God cleans up in a person, is the way they talk. But not just that. Being holy in our communication, we want to be holy even in our appearance. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, check out your closet. See what you got going on in there. And ask yourself this question. How would God dress me? I'm not talking about legalism now. I know there are a lot of groups that also talk about this, but it's their defining characteristic, and they don't even have a shred of the love of Christ in them, okay? I'm talking about all of this being moved and motivated by the right thing. Love for God out of a pure heart. We're reaching back to Sunday morning's message now. Love for God out of a pure heart. That's critically important. Ask yourself that question when you get up in the morning. And you open up your closet doors and you're like, what am I going to wear today? Oh, what did pastors say? How would God dress me? Well, probably the clubbing and hooking clothes would go out pretty fast, wouldn't they? Those torn up, shredded muscle shirts. How would God dress me? And we'll attach another thought to that. Do I love my neighbor? Do I love my neighbor? You take that into consideration also when you get ready to put something on and step outside your house. And what you wear in your house is your house. You know, who in the world cares? It's where you live. Well, let you step outside. You are representing your God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it's just something to think about. He's called us unto holiness in all manner of our life. He says, he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. God said that. That's why it's phrased that way. God said, be ye holy, for I am holy. Let me tell you something that God wants, and I'll tell you something that God will have. I'm not trying to say it in a menacing way. I'm just saying that knowing our Lord and knowing what he said and throughout the word concerning whoever he has identified as his people, whether it was his people Israel in the Old Testament or his people the church in the New Testament, he will have a holy people. But holiness begins right here. It doesn't begin in the wardrobe. It doesn't begin in the vocabulary. It doesn't begin in any of those things. It begins in heart in the mind. It begins in the inner man, in the inner woman. And from there, by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God, if we let it and we don't fight it, it will radiate out. That holiness of God will radiate out into all corners of our life. And when that happens, let me tell you something, there's nothing more beautiful. There's nothing more beautiful in the life of a man or a woman. And so tonight's lesson really is all boils down to paragraph four here, verses 13 through 16. Let's be holy because our Father in heaven is holy and because he's commanded us to be holy. So let's be holy together, shall we? As obedient children, well-pleasing to our Father. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving.